Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Five, Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning there in your Bibles, uh, I came across an article in the newspaper a few years ago, and it was an article about marriage in Colorado. And the title of the newspaper article was Fewer Coloradans Getting Hitched. And it was based upon U.S. Census data with um, Colorado uh, information. And it was saying that most Coloradans are waiting to get married. And there were a lot of different reasons. Uh, Some of the respondents were saying things like, we've seen the divorce rate with our baby boomer parents, and so we don't want to make that commitment. Obviously, others are choosing to live together and not get married at all. And, and so it was interesting when you heard the responses of these young people in Colorado as to why they weren't getting married. A one 23-year-old interviewed said this. She said, I think people are realizing that marriage is too big a commitment to take lightly. You want to make sure you're totally compatible before you get hitched. There was another surprising reason that I thought was interesting in Colorado. Recreation. Another respondent said, I think people in Colorado might be waiting because this is such an active state. Once you get married, you have kids, and you lose all that time and freedom to do the things you want to do. Okay. It's no doubt that in our culture, there is a fear of commitment. Would you agree? People don't want to commit to anything, much less commit to the covenant of marriage. And so here's the issue. The issue is not that we don't know the Scriptures. The problem is that we know the Scriptures all too well. We know what the Bible says about husbands and wives. We know what the Bible says about parenting. We know what the Bible says. It's not that we're suffering from a lack of information. We've got tons of information, we've got tons of conferences, we've got tons of videos, we've got tons of organizations that talk about the family. The issue is not for lack of information. Here's the issue. We lack power. We lack the gospel-centered power to actually live out what God has called us to do. Because let's face it, and I don't want you to raise your hands here, but how many of you really fear failure when it comes to marriage? How many of you fear that you're not doing it right or that somehow you're going to mess up or somehow you're just not right with with your spouse or you're not doing things right? And let's just be real honest about marriage and family. It sure takes a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of commitment to make marriages last in our culture today. So what we really need is not more techniques. What we need is power, gospel-centered power. Now, we started on this journey of being a Christ-centered family in a me-centered world. And we looked at it from the, 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 the situation of the Trinity. We started a few weeks ago looking at God the Father. God the Father has sovereignly ordained marriages and family. He's created it. He's instituted it. And the bottom line is we can't mess up with what God has instituted. Last week, we looked at Jesus Christ the Son. 
that Jesus Christ is the one to whom we owe ultimate allegiance. Our marriages, our lives, our families are to live under his supreme lordship as we owe him ultimate allegiance. And, and as we said shockingly last week, every other human relationship needs to look like hate compared to loving Christ. Yet oftentimes when we start talking about marriage and family, we get to the how-to. Pastor Sean, this is great. You're, you're setting a theological foundation, but let's get to the how-tos. I really, I'm first in line here as a clueless husband. Tell me how to be a better husband. Or tell me how to be a better wife. Give me what I need. T- tell me how to do it. Well, I will, but here's the issue. Oftentimes what happens when we get to the how-to is that pastors go right to Ephesians 5.22. So let's go to Ephesians 5.22. That's where most of the discussion starts. So we're, we're going to start there. It shouldn't start there, but most pastors start there. So wives, are you ready for some guilt? Wives, are you ready to be, to be shocked? Because here's where we're starting. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, let's go home, wives. That's shocking. Submit. Well, that's where the discussion always starts. Wives, submit to your own husbands husbands. Now, it's interesting. When you look at the original language there in Ephesians 5.22, there is no verb in the original language. There is no submit to your own husbands in the original language. As a matter of fact, in the Greek text, it just reads, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Your English translations have put in the word submit. And you have to ask the question, well, why would all of our English translations put the word submit in there when it's not in the Greek text? It goes back up to verse 21. So go back up and look at verse 21, and hopefully you have a good translation. If you have a good translation, like the ESV or the King James or the New King James, it will end in an ing. It's the word submitting, ing submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's that submitting there in verse 21, and the uh, interpreters and the, and the translators of our scriptures have put the, the inferred submit there when it comes to wives and husbands. And now you may ask yourselves, now why are you taking me on this weird excursion looking at grammar and ING words and, and all this weird stuff before we start talking about marriage and family? What's the purpose of it, Pastor Sean? Here's the purpose of it. Chapter 5 of Ephesians is the definitive chapter in the New Testament on marriage and family. So we're going to camp out here over the next few weeks. And it doesn't start with Ephesians 5.22. There's a flow of thought in Paul's logic and Paul's argument that actually goes back up to verse 17 that starts his argument. So any discussion about marriage and family, about husbands and wives, about parents and children, has to start in the context of where Ephesians starts it. A lot of times pastors just jump in and say, okay, wives, it's up to you to submit. No foundation, no basis, no explanation, just jumps right in with the command there, and they don't root it in how it actually starts. So what we're going to do is we're going to start where Paul starts and go back to verse 17 as the foundation. So here's the big idea for this morning. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday where the church throughout the world, celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so we're going to look at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the Father, we've looked at the Son, now we're looking at the Holy Spirit. So here's the crucial idea for this morning. The Holy Spirit is crucial in supplying us the power to actually live out what it means to be a Christ-centered family. The Holy Spirit's crucial. You and I cannot do this thing called marriage and family without 
the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is crucial. And I told you to come back next week, last week. I kind of left you hanging and said, we owe ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And it was a tall order. It was a hard thing to grasp. It, It was a challenge. The gauntlet was raised down. And I said, how in the world can we do this? Well, you and I can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is indispensable in equipping us, encouraging us, empowering us, motivating us, working in us to be the types of husbands and wives and children and parents and even the Christian that God has called us to be. The Holy Spirit is crucial in supplying the power to actually live out what it means to be a Christ-centered family. So let's look at Paul's flow of thought and go back to verse 17. Because he starts verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 5 with the therefore. And you have to ask what the therefore is there for. It's, it's, a, it's a transitional statement. He's setting up his next flow of thought. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, here's the main verb in this entire section. Be filled with spirit. That's his starting argument there. That's the main verb. Be filled with the Spirit. Then verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then you move into verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. So it starts with this whole idea of walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And most discussions about marriage and family leave out the Holy Spirit. It just starts with the command, wives, you got to do this. Husbands, you got to do this. Children, you got to do this. Parents, you got to do this. And yes, we've got to do some things, but we can't do these things unless we have the foundation of what it means to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in supplying us the power. So what I want to do is I want to ask three questions of this text to help us fully understand what it means to be a Christ-centered family empowered by the Holy Spirit. So here's question number one. It's a very simple question, but I think it's a complex answer. What does it mean to be spirit-filled. Paul says right there, be filled by the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? Now, it's interesting because Paul is using this metaphor of getting drunk. In verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine. Do not get soaked is literally the the original language there. Do not get soaked with wine. In other words, don't keep on being inebriated because it's going to lead to debauchery. Now let me give you a little background about Ephesus. Paul is writing to the town of Ephesians, of Ephesus. There's something you need to know about Ephesus, the original audience to whom Paul's writing. In Ephesus, there was the temple of Diana the seventh wonder of the world. She was a fertility goddess. It was a huge place where people would come and and there were temple prostitutes and there were all this type of crazy stuff going on in Ephesus at the temple of Diana. But also, the patron god of Ephesus was Bacchus or Dionysius. Anybody know who Bacchus or Dionysius is? 
the god of wine and orgies. So, pagans in Ephesus would go get drunk and go to the temple orgies and engage in all type of debauchery. And so Paul says, this is your culture, Ephesus. Instead of doing what your culture is telling you to do, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Proverbs 23, 20 through 21 tells us about what it means to get drunk. Be not among drunkards or among gluttons, eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Paul's saying don't get consumed with alcohol. It leads to debauchery. Now, it's interesting, that word debauchery that's there in the ESV, that the way they translate it, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he talks about the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, you have this statement about the prodigal son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The word reckless living is the same word for debauchery. So Paul is setting up here a contrast, a metaphor. Don't keep on continually being under the influence of alcohol as a drunkard because it's going to lead you to do reckless things. Instead, in contrast, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now let's think about medical issues for a moment here about alcohol. You guys know this. Is alcohol a depressant or a stimulant? It's a depressant. It's a depressant. What does it do? It messes with your faculties. It slows down your speech. It messes with your ability to process information and your logic. It is a depressant. Now, do you think the Holy Spirit is a depressant or a stimulant? A stimulant. In contrast to alcohol being a depressant, the Holy Spirit, Paul's saying, is a stimulant. He's going to stimulate. He's going to motivate. He's going to empower. He's going to equip you to be what God wants you to be. Now, there's a lot of confusion over what it means to be spirit-filled. You go around town and you say, what's a spirit-filled Christian? And you're going to get a bunch of different answers. Now, if you watch Christian television, which I encourage you not to, you're going to see a lot of different manifestations of what it means to be spirit-filled. Does it mean that you bark like a dog and roll around the aisles uncontrollably? Does it mean you get slain in the spirit and you fall back and a guy with a white jacket comes and blows the anointing on you? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, what we need to be looking at here is the original language. He says there, be filled, it should be by the Holy Spirit, technically. My translation here says with, but technically it should be by the Holy Spirit. In other words... It's this whole idea of being influenced, being influenced or controlled. Now, when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, oftentimes what people have is this idea that you're an empty cup. This is not empty, but you're an empty vessel, and the Holy Spirit just needs to be poured into your life. And the more that you empty yourself out, the more the Holy Spirit can pour himself into you. The problem with that analogy is that the Holy Spirit's not a substance. He's not an it. He's not a liquid. He's not a force. He's not um, some type of impersonal force out there. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. So a divine person can't fill you up with the substance. A divine person can 
influence you. He can control you. He can motivate you. And so sometimes we deny the personality of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the issue. Here's the metaphor. What's Paul saying here? What's the metaphor? He says, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk on wine. So when, let's say you go out, hopefully you don't do this. Let's say your friend does this because you would never do this. You go to a party and get drunk. And you start driving down the road and you start sweeping and curve, you know, swerving and, and you, um, you get pulled over. And, and the nice cop comes and says, what's going on? And they come out and you do the breathalyzer and you, you walk the aisle. I've never had to experience this before, but I've heard stories about this. You probably never experienced this either. But he says, you are driving what? Under the influence. You're driving under the influence of alcohol. So think about being Holy Spirit filled in this sense. You are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You are under his influence. Now, I want to give you some grammar from this one little passage to help you understand what this really means. Because we're still answering the question, what does it mean to be spirit filled? Well, let's look at it. There in verse 18. Be filled by the Spirit. Here's the first grammatical issue you need to understand. It's in the present tense, which means this. It can be translated this way. Keep on continually as a lifestyle being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not a one-time thing that happens to you. It's not a crisis moment. It's a condition. It's a state of being. It's where you're putting yourself under the influence of the Holy Spirit to keep on continually being influenced, being empowered, being equipped by the Holy Spirit as a lifestyle. So it's a continuous action. It's a continuous lifestyle. It's not just, I was filled with the Spirit once, and then you kind of live your life. It's, it's this constant being filled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's present tense, but it's also a command. Be filled. It's something that we're commanded to do. Now, obviously, we can't fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. He's sovereign in doing that. But I think when it's a, a command there, I think what Paul's saying is put yourself in a position, put yourself in a posture to where you can continually be filled with the Spirit. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Now, there's a couple of metaphors of what the actual word filled means. If you go back and look in the Greek lexicon and you try to do a word study, what does this word filled mean? There's, there's some metaphors that show up. One metaphor of being filled, that word filled, is the idea of, of wind carrying a sailboat. It's the idea of wind blowing and charting your course. And so you can think kind of in a metaphorical sense that the Holy Spirit is the one that, that guides and directs and moves and prompts and courses your life. He guides you. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. You're guided, you're prompted, you're moved by the Holy Spirit. The other metaphor that's used, if you look in a Greek lexicon and what this word means, it's the idea of being permeated. Like the way salt would permeate food back in the day when they didn't have refrigerators. It's this idea of being permeated. So it's the idea of the Holy Spirit is, 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 is affecting your entire life. You're being permeated by the Spirit. But most, most often, especially in the context of what Paul is saying here, the word itself means control. Control. Who has control of your life? Does 
alcohol have control of your life in the metaphor that Paul is using here? Or does the Holy Spirit have control of your life? Are you voluntarily submitting yourself under the Lordship of Christ to be continually, constantly, as a lifestyle, filled, controlled, influenced, motivated, empowered by the Holy Spirit? So that's what it means. It means to be controlled, to be guided continually as a lifestyle under the power of the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to our second question. If that's what it means, then the the next question we've got to ask is, well, then what does it look like? What does a Spirit-filled person look like? If you're controlled by the Spirit, if you're moved by the Spirit, if you're motivated by the Spirit, if you are permeated, if you're guided by the Spirit, whatever word you want to use, what does it look like? What does that person display? Well, Paul does not leave us in the dark. He actually answers this question in the next verse. The main verb here is be filled. Main verb. Underneath this main verb, there are four what we call participles. A participle is simply an ing word, a word that ends in ing, that goes back up and describes or modifies the main verb. And so Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. He says, okay, I'm going to give you four distinguishing marks of what it looks like to be spirit-filled. So we're not in the dark as to what Paul's saying here. So let's look at these four. And they're all in the present tense as well. So these things are keep on continually, main verb, keep on continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Paul's going to give four evidences, and these are continuous actions. Now, these aren't things you would think. If there's any, it's not weird manifestations. It's not jumping from chandeliers. It's not rolling around and barking like a dog. If there's any place in the Bible where Paul would have said, okay, here's what a spirit-filled Christian looks like, watch TBN, that's what he would say. But he doesn't say that. He's got exactly here what a spirit-filled Christian looks like. And let's look at these four. Here's the first one, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. First of all, it's addressing each other in songs of praise. Now, what does this mean? Addressing one another. This is our corporate worship together as God's people. In other words, a spirit-filled person loves to be among God's people, among God's family, publicly worshiping together. No Lone Ranger Christian here. You can tell a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled person by the fact that they want to be with other believers. Whether it's in a large gathering like this or whether it's in a home Bible study, but you value, and especially I think it's more of the corporate worship here because it's talking about addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And yes, when we sing, we're singing to God. But do you realize we're singing to each other? We're teaching our children theology when we sing. We are encouraging each other. Now, can you sing to Jesus in the shower and be encouraged? Sure. Can you sing to Erewhon driving down the road and be encouraged? Sure. But how many of us get more encouraged when you're among a body of believers and you're all singing? Do you feel more encouraged singing with a group of people than by yourself? That's what a spirit-filled person loves to do. I can't wait to be among God's people to where I can sing together, be with God's people. I'm not a Lone Ranger Christian out here trying to do it by myself, but I love the body of Christ. That's the first thing that a spirit-filled Christian looks like. Now, what's the second thing? Second thing is singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Singing to the Lord with your heart. Now, this is the private worship. You've got the corporate worship. This is the singing in the shower, or this is the singing on the road. This is the whole idea that 
God has so gripped me that I've got this joy in my heart. I've got this joy deep down in my heart. I'm singing in my heart. I'm a joyful person. I'm a person that loves just to to have this melody in my heart. The Holy Spirit's filling me with his joy. It's an evidence of this fruit of the Spirit that comes from this whole idea of deep in your heart. So, So number one, you love to be together that's an encouraging time, but number two, it's those, those, that, that, that heart, that joyful heart that spills out and fl- overflows to other people. You've got a joyful heart. You sing to the Lord in your heart. Now, this doesn't mean that you're always happy clappy, that you're walking around and you're, you're this bubbly cheerleader and everything's going great. That would annoy me if you were like that all the time. But what it means is, and the opposite is, it doesn't mean that you're this sour Dower Christian, and everything's so bad, and oh Lord, my goodness, my life stinks, and I'm Eeyore. It's not what it's talking about. It's the joy of the Lord is your strength. You exude this joy. Have you been around somebody that's really, truly joyful? Regardless of what their circumstances is, they sing and make melody of the Lord in their heart because they've got the joy of the Lord deep in their heart. Now, what's the third one? This is where it gets even more difficult. Thirdly, What does he say there in verse 20? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always and for everything. You want to know a spirit-filled Christian? They're thankful. Not just at Thanksgiving, but all the time they're thankful. Now, there's some struggle with this because I think as Christians, we're some of the, there's some times where it's really hard to be thankful. I mean, I, I've been evaluating my past couple weeks or past couple months. You know, th- there's a lot that, that happened to our family. Okay, I broke my ankle. Didn't want that to happen. I didn't say it totally incapacitated me, but it wasn't on my radar screen. I didn't want it to happen. I, it, was, it was an inconvenience. Was I thankful through that? Not really. Ask Don. It's kind of grumpy. I have to be honest with you. I struggled and said, God, I'm not thankful for my broken ankle. Be thankful in everything. So I had to begin thinking, well, how can I be thankful for this? Well, I was thankful because here's what happened. On that Sunday morning, here's the issue. It was a Sunday morning, and Dawn was already here with the praise team, and Aiden was already here, and I had Zach in the car, car running. I walked around the back of the car to get in the driver's side, and that's when I slipped on the ice and broke my ankle, and I heard the pop. The lady across the street came out and said, I think you broke your ankle. I heard a pop. And I'm thinking, okay, what do I do now? I've got Zach in the car. I can't get, even if I could get Zach out, what am I going to do? So I called Don. I'm like, I think, and I, and I wasn't very kind when I called her. I think I kind of yelled, I broke my ankle. What am I going to do? <laughs> you guys have never yelled at your wives before, have you? So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to come to church. What, what, what else can I do? But here's what I'm thankful for. Number one, it could have happened with Zach with me, and Zach could have hurt himself. Zach could have fallen and could have, I could have fallen and not just hurt my ankle, but I could have been knocked unconscious with the car running and not have access to a cell phone. The lady across the street may not have heard it. There's a lot of things I can be thankful for. So, so be thankful in all situations. And I'm still learning this. I have not arrived as your pastor. This is one of the hardest areas, but you know a person is spirit-filled when they're thankful. Okay, here's the fourth one. This is where it gets even more difficult. Verse 21 submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission. Submitting to one another. Submitting is a military term. We're going to talk about that over the next week. It means to line up and rank underneath. 
And yes, there are roles and there are hierarchies in the marriage where the husband is to be the spiritual leader and the wife is to voluntarily submit. We're going to address that next week. But before Paul gets there, this is a commandment for all Christians. We're to be submitting to one another. In other words, we're to be putting the other's needs above our own. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a moment. Turn back one page in your Bible. Verses 1 through 3. Paul gives an appeal here about what it would look like to be spirit-filled in submitting to one another. I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To be gentle, to be humble, to bear with one another, to submit to one another. What does Philippians 2, 3 through 4 say? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you have a pride issue, there's probably a submission issue. At my former church, when I was a youth pastor about 10, 12 years ago, um, I was probably in my late 20s, maybe around 30 or so. And I was a young guy. I didn't, I, I didn't have all the answers, and I made a lot of mistakes. But, what, you know, young, young pastors, they don't know everything. Well, there was a guy that was working in our youth ministry. And this guy prided himself on being spirit-filled. He was always talking about how, Sean, you need to be more spirit-filled, and you need to talk more about Jesus, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, and let's just love everybody, and let's just be gracious, and, and let's just love everybody. And so he didn't like my discipline policy that I would, like, discipline children in the youth group, and it was just like, let's just uh, let anything go, because really, we don't want to get too hard on these kids, because we really got to teach them grace. We really want to teach them how to be spirit-filled. And so this whole business about not disciplining, well, well, at one point, there, there, there was a really bad apple in our youth group, and I had to deal with this bad apple kid. And so this adult came to me and got in my face on a sunny morning and basically said, I disagree. He basically undermined my authority, was very rude about it. And basically, his words to me was, you're not submitting to your elders. He wasn't an elder in a church. He was just older. He's like, you're not submitting. You're not being spirit-filled. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And I thought, the whole time you're telling me I'm not submitting and being spirit-filled, you're demonstrating that you're not being spirit-filled. And so it was an issue of submission. Whether, whether any authority in your life, all of us have some type of authority in our lives, whether that's a boss, whether that's the government, whether that's a law enforcement, whether that's your parents. And when you have a submission problem, you have a spirit-filled problem. Show me a person who has a submission problem, and I'll show you a person that's not at that moment being filled by the Spirit. Now, it's interesting that the evidences that he uses here are the fruit of the Spirit. What does a spirit-filled person look like? Singing, worshiping, encouraging, humility, thankfulness. It sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. Now get to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now as we go through the roles of husbands and wives, I hope it makes a whole lot more sense now to lay that foundation that you and I cannot fulfill the roles of husbands and wives unless first of all we understand what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And many discussions on marriage and family leave this out. Don't talk about the Holy Spirit. They just give you the how-to. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that's great when you tell me I have to love it the way Jesus did. That's a tall order. Wives, submit to your husband. Well, that's great. What if my husband's a jerk? Parents, obey your, or children, obey your parents. Well, that's great. You don't have the parents I have. 
Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Well, you don't know the kids I have. Just do it. Do it. It's what the Bible says. Do it. Well, yes, it's what the Bible says. But before you get to the do it, you've got the foundation of how and why you can do it. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So the desperate need that you and I need to be praying for in our marriages is not more techniques, not more books on marriage, not more focus on the family seminars. Those things are good. What we need to be praying for, the desperate need of the hour is this, power. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Lord, would you guide me by your spirit? Lord, would you help me to be a spirit-filled husband, a spirit-filled wife, a spirit-filled parent, a spirit-filled child? I, I, I can't do this on my own strength. I can't do this on my own power. It's hard. I need your strength. I need your power. I need the filling of the Holy Spirit. Would you please do that in my life? Which leads us to our third question. Number one, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Number two, what does it look like? And you're probably, this is the question you're all answering. Okay, here's, here's the, the third question. Okay, how do I get spirit-filled? How does it happen? Well, after the service, you come down here and I'll knock you on the head and you'll get spirit-filled. <laughs> or you'll go to the latest and greatest health, wealth, prosperity teacher and he'll blow his handkerchief on you and you'll get spirit-filled. How do you get spirit-filled? It's a difficult but simple question. The best way to show you this is to show Paul's parallel passage. Ephesians and Colossians are almost parallel books in the Bible. There's a lot of same material. As a matter of fact, if you go to Colossians, he's got a lot of the same teachings on husbands and wives. I want you to look at Colossians 3.16. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to turn there, that's fine too. Colossians 3.16. And I want you to see the similarities between what Paul says in Ephesians about being spirit-filled and what Paul says in Colossians 3.16, and see if you can see some parallels here. What's left out and what's not left out. Okay, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Does that sound like what we just heard? Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does that sound like what we just heard? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that sound like what we just heard? So he gives some evidences. Okay, you're singing, you're teaching, you're encouraging, you're being thankful. But what's the difference? What does he say in Colossians? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does he say in Ephesians? Be spirit-filled. So what's the connection? How do you get spirit-filled? When you saturate yourself in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit himself wrote, the more you saturate yourself in the scriptures, the more the Holy Spirit's going to work in your heart to produce that spirit-filled life. You cannot be spirit-filled apart from the scriptures. There's an equal correlation. The more you saturate yourself, the more you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, the more you meditate on the scriptures, the more that you soak in the scriptures, the more that you believe the scriptures. Guess what the Holy Spirit does with the will and the heart and the mind of a regenerated person? If you're truly a Christian, what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to start convicting you. He's going to start moving in you. He's going to start enlightening you. And and pretty soon you're going to notice that your behavior starts to change and and, and things start to transform. And you look back and you're like, how in the world did that happen? That wasn't me. Exactly, it wasn't you. It was the Holy Spirit working in you to fill you. But what did you do? You saturated yourself in the Scriptures. But I want to show you one last thing here. Verse 21. Go back to Ephesians. What does he say? 
under submitting. This is another key. Verse 21, submitting to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. That's the key to the entire marriage discussion. Why do you do what you do? You do it because you love Jesus. And we'll talk about this next week. Wives, why do you submit to your husbands? Because you love Jesus. Husbands, why do you love your wives? Because you love Jesus. Parents, why do you raise your kids up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Because you love Jesus. Children, why do you obey your parents? Because you love Jesus. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is to show us Jesus. John 16, 14. Jesus says, this is the role of the Holy Spirit when he comes. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's another way to be spirit-filled. If the, if the number one way is to saturate yourself in the scriptures, another way to be spirit-filled is to keep your eyes fixed on your love for Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come like a floodlight and shine Jesus in front of you as glorious and beautiful. And guess what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to show you Jesus? If the Holy Spirit begins to come and show you Jesus, you end up looking like Jesus. I've said this many times, the more you look at Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. And what is the role of the Holy Spirit? He works in us to look at Jesus. Do you got a scripture for that, Pastor Sean? I sure do. I'm glad you asked. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, or looking at the glory of the Lord, what happens when we look at the glory of the Lord? What happens when we look to Jesus? We're being transformed. We have this inner renewal. We're being spirit-filled. We're being, we're being conformed into what? The same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, the more that you look at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. Who does this? Paul answers the question for us. He says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that. So let me give you three statements about the family. The foundation. We, we've kind of laid the theological foundation. Next week, we're moving into husbands and wives. But here's number one. A family is radically God-oriented. Radically God-oriented. It's all about the glory of God. That's your ultimate question. Is it about the glory of God? It's radically God-oriented. Number two, it's radically Christ-centered. He's the one to whom you owe allegiance. You are centered in Christ, His Lordship. And number three, it's radically spirit-empowered. It's radically spirit-empowered. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live the life that God's called us to live. Now, we're going to move into a time of taking the Lord's Supper this morning. And you may think, well, what in the world does the Lord's Supper have to do with this talk about the Holy Spirit? Well, let's just put it this way. You and I could never trust Christ for salvation. You and I could never see our need for Jesus. You and I could never experience eternal life and the blood of Christ without the Holy Spirit. He's indispensable to your salvation. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, yes, we're focusing in on what Christ has done, but why can we celebrate what Christ has done? Because the Holy Spirit's done a work in our hearts. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning, and we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. And as you think about preparing to take the Lord's Supper, 
ask the Lord, who is the Spirit, to do this work of conforming you to the image of Christ, of making you look more like Jesus, of, of filling you. And think about these areas in your life maybe this morning. How is your corporate worship and your value of being together with God's people? Number two, how is the joy in your heart? How is your thankfulness? How is your submission? And if you're lacking in these areas, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, to guide you, to control you. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. Spend just a few moments in quiet reflection as we get prepared to take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for choosing to save us. You were the initiator. We did not initiate our salvation. You initiated it from eternity past. You sent your one and only Son to come. And Jesus, we're so thankful that you and the Father in eternity past agreed in a covenant of redemption that you would come, Jesus, and you would pour out your body into death in the new covenant of your blood to purchase your people. And Holy Spirit, we're so thankful that the only way we could have ever seen Christ, seen our need for Christ, trusted Christ, is because you did a work of regeneration, a work of conviction, a work of opening our eyes. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we come as Trinitarians, Father. We don't come as just generic God people. We come worshiping God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who all three of you, three in one, have obtained our eternal redemption. Father, you planned it. Jesus, you secured it. And Holy Spirit, you applied it to our lives. So thank you. And thank you for the power that you give us, Holy Spirit, to live a Christ-centered life. I, I don't want us to feel any guilt this morning that somehow we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to be better parents, to be better children, to be better husbands and wives. Lord, let it start with the gospel of grace that comes in the power of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And let that be our motivation into how we go into these roles. Always is the undergirding, the, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Christ, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Let that always be in our thought process. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we take our Lord.